This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 136 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Ken Kesey's 1962 novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's times like these that I really wish we could use uh, copyrighted music, because I feel like the Grateful Dead should be playing right now as we intro this this book. <laughs> I mean, we could, it just might get flagged, <laughs> so we're going we're yeah. to choose to not for now, but yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, just imagine the Grateful Dead playing, um, you know, we are about to get into a lot of history surrounding uh, the counterculture uh, movement of the 60s, um, because I went down a rabbit hole uh, investigating and researching Ken Kesey and this novel. And, uh, you know, you're familiar with the uh, the chaos theory of like the butterfly flaps its wings and causes a tsunami or what, not a tsunami, hurricane somewhere else. Maybe a tsunami. Who knows? Butterfly effect, right? Yeah, butterfly effect. Yeah, exactly. Um what do I call it? Chaos theory? Chaos I'm, theory, I'm yeah. Going, going back to Jurassic Park. Maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. Similar but different, yeah. Anyway, I uh, I was reading about all this stuff and I'm like, this might be the most important book we've ever covered. Because if this happens, then this happens, this happens. You'll see. I'll make some connections. Um, but then mm-hmm. I was realizing that I was like getting way ahead of myself. And it's like, you never know what like actually causes something to happen. Because especially like social movements. Mm-hmm. Um, have they, they really start in multiple areas kind of simultaneously often. It's hard to trace it back to like one thing. Um, but we'll get into it because Ken Kesey um, is a extremely important figure in the counterculture movement that led to like the hippie movement of the 60s. And this book is the thing that put him on the map. So we'll get into like all the ways these things all connect. Um, but I, I found it really fascinating and it's always fun when, and on the podcast we, we go, Oh, let's just cover this book. Or let's just cover this movie. I've never seen It's based off a book. Oh yeah. I've heard of that book. Let's, let's look into it. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm learning all this stuff and I feel like I understand the hippie culture and hippie movement way more than I ever did just from all this research I've been doing. It's wild to think of a project or, or a story having multiple lives, but yeah, the, the, the impact from what you're saying, you know, I'm not that familiar with this, with the story as it's told in the novel i've seen the movie um and i know how i know the plot points i know the characters i know the ending and i know some of that stuff but i feel like it's i it's got it must be more than 10 years since i've seen this movie um so i feel like i'm starting to pick up some other things maybe i wasn't before but yeah just just to hear how important it is as a as a novel for an entire movement and knowing how important it was for filmmaking and knowing how important the movie would be when it would come out in like the 7 I think it was like 1975 or so. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm so I'm excited to hear I I know that I think you you mentioned to me before that this is a book that people have read in school it's been assigned in school but I, I it was never something i read in school or anything like that so i've been asking some people if they read it in school and i, I don't think it was as widespread as i originally thought and uh, what i was realizing is i think it was a book that was talked about in creative writing circles a lot um which is you know one of the things we'll get into as to why um so i think i was touching more on my my 
undergraduate experience at the University of Florida, where you're talking about different authors. And I think Ken Kesey and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came up as you know examples of um, writing things that you know, which is something mm. that a lot of people talk about. Um, and he, this is one of the key examples. Um, so maybe that was me kind of like, I thought that maybe more people had read this in school. Um, it's also just a famous book. And um, like you said, you've seen the movie. I actually have not seen the movie. Um, I know very little about it. I've seen um, I've probably scenes here or there that have been lifted and put into something else. Um, I'm familiar somewhat with the concept behind it. And then, uh, you know, I'd never read the book before either. So I really am coming into this about as, you know, free and, and unbiased uh, uh, as you can uh, for a project that this that is this big. Um, and we have only read, we should also say right here, we've only read the first half of the novel, which consists of part one, um, took us to about the halfway point. So we decided to stop there. Um, and one of the reasons we did that is we wanted to be able to tackle a lot of this background information that I was finding. Um, so we're going to put off part two of the book discussion till next week. And that will give us more of a chance to talk about maybe some of the themes and like what what Ken Kesey's going for, what the message of the book is, once we've read it in its entirety. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll start formulating some theories now off, based off of what we've read, but um, that'll be more next week's episode, whereas this week we'll be setting up the story. So you mentioned counterculture, and I, I just wanted to draw a parallel that I that's like sort of a touchstone for me when speaking about counterculture in like the 60s and 70s, um, and it kind of connects to this. Uh, to this One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, more specifically the movie. But um, ha there's a movie called Easy Rider with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper from the late 60s, I think. And it's it's kind of the... the and I don't know, you know, I don't know the comparison. I don't know all of the details behind the book that you're, you're going to tell me throughout this episode. But um, in, terms, in terms of like a landmark counterculture, something that people point to is like a moment in time when people saw a movie or read a story that kind of changed society as a whole and made and legitimized something. Um, Easy Rider has Jack Nicholson in it. And uh, that was in the late sixties. And then a few years later, he would be in one floor of the cuckoo's nest, which you're saying is a huge landmark counterculture novel. Um, so to have him kind of be in both of these counterculture touchstones. So I haven't done a lot of research into the film. Um, because I was going to save that till we get to the movie. Um, I, I know that it won, all, you know, I think five Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. It's considered, uh, you know, a landmark film in many ways. And because of that, it's going to have its own footprint that's probably quite big. And I want to definitely touch on that when we get there, especially comparing it to the the landmark uh, sort of nature of the, the the novel. And do are they affecting the same things? because they came out over a decade apart. So in some ways they might be talking about different different things. I don't know. So I definitely want to touch back in on like the historical significance of the film when we get to that. But before we get into the background, I do want to get just your general impressions on the novel so far, the the first half that we've read at least. Like how are you, how are you liking it? What's your experience with it? Well, so far I'm getting a really different experience from this novel. And like I said, I remembered less of the actual intricacies of the story than I thought that I did. Like I remembered, like I said, plot points, kind of the the premise of the story, the characters and how it ends. And reading this story, there's already been a huge shift um, in what I'm familiar with for the story. So it feels extremely fresh to me right now. 
uh, in terms of just like coming to a project and not being super familiar with it. Uh, I'm enjoying this sort of story, especially for the time. I like to, you know, we like to put this th these things in the context of when they came out. The idea of a storytelling the perspective of people who are who are mentally ill, people who are having to deal with things that that you know you or I don't have to on a daily basis, and they're it's also in a time where people were less understanding with with some of this stuff. I, I just think of if something like this was out of sight, out of mind for somebody, and then they read this story, it might have been one of the first times they were really confronted with this idea that people people were being treated a certain way, and and they they're going through a lot, and and just um. Sort of what I'm realizing from the first half specifically is just this blanket care that some of these people were getting in these uh, institutions, the way that it was just like, no matter, it wasn't catered to what, what they actually had going on. It was more just like, put them somewhere and take care of them, make sure they don't hurt anybody kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and there's been so many psychological studies uh, that were being done at the time and have come out since about putting people in facilities like this um, and what that does to them. And um, you know, we haven't seen much examples of it yet, but I can feel the electroshock therapy specter looming in this novel. Um, I, I suspect that it is coming and we know that that was something that was being abused, um, and misused by people in these sorts of institutions in the sixties and before, um, even though things had started to get better at this time, um, because if you go back to like the twenties and thirties, um, or before stuff was truly barbaric in a lot of these places, but it still had a long way to go. And like you said, this, this was a sort of an expose, even though it was fiction in some ways, and at least brought some awareness around that particular issue for sure. How are you finding the writing so far though? Because it's from the perspective of Bromden. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like it's, I was expecting from a book that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was based off of, I was expecting it to be very, grounded like I, th I felt like it was going to be a very much a real story and and it, and it definitely is but because we're from the perspective of Bromden who who is dealing with seemingly the PTSD and maybe some schizophrenia we're given the perspective of not only an unreliable narrator but someone who has episodes who has things happen to them that that again you or I are not familiar with so to write in that perspective has been really interesting and to like experience something through that perspective and it's scary too, right? It's not just about it being something different. It's it's that it's legitimately scary and something that people have to deal with. And the the way that the human brain is able to somewhat cope with these things, like uh, like specifically Bromden when the fog rolls in, and this is like his way of coping with, I guess, a loss of himself. He feels like sometimes like sort of losing himself in this fog, or whether it's the medication or or the disease that he's dealing with. Um, it's just it's just like to to experience that I think is and it's in my opinion it's done really well. We're given some really thought provoking moments that kind of have a perspective on like just the, the the idea of there's the chapter and this you know we're jumping ahead a little bit but the chapter where he doesn't take his his uh, meds that, that night and basically is like seeing the inner workings of the institution as like a creature and like that whole mm -hmm. chapter was fascinating from a writing perspective just because it's so otherworldly but still grounded in what actually might be happening to somebody. You're talking about when basically when he's hallucinating, which um, it's unclear 
just how often he's hallucinating. Right. Um, at least it was unclear to me. Um, there are times where it's like, okay, he's definitely hallucinating right now. There's not like fog so thick that you can't see people through it going on right now in this institution. But then, but then uh, he'll say something like, uh, there's a guy who's, who's like pinned to the wall. And, you know, I'm like, is he pinned to the wall? Or is that, is that some sort of hallucination of this guy? Or is he actually being confined to the wall? I don't know. Um, and there, there's just lots of examples of that. The opening chapter, uh, there's a line in there that, that kind of puts it perfectly. He says, it's still hard for me to have a clear mind thinking on it, but it's the truth, even if it didn't happen. And I think that's, that's the, 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 the insight into this narrator is he's giving us his experience. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's true. But he doesn't know whether or not everything he experienced, quote unquote, happened. Right. <laughs> right. Which, uh, you know, if you're mentally ill, that, that's, that's the way a lot of people uh, in that situation would ha- have to live. Right. And I think that, that, that leads us as, uh, as readers down paths where it's leaving mystery in the, it's leaving the mystery open. So it's, it's obviously like, how much do we, how much do we believe? Because clearly, in, in my perspective, for the first half of the book, we have to believe some of it is going on. It can't yeah. all just be hallucinations or, or something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, we get a lot of discussions of electronics and machinery and listening devices and, you know, all this different stuff that sometimes you're like, oh, that's kind of weird that that would be happening. And then you realize, like, oh, it's not happening. This is all just him hallucinating right. that there, there there's a there's a listening device in his mop or whatever and that he's he's a spy and he doesn't even realize it. One of the most clear moments of him seeing something that might not have actually been there uh, was when he opened up his pill and there was like a little machine that looked like something that he yeah. worked on in the military. So it's like if he, you know, it's like clearly it's kind of looped in with his past and the PTSD that he's coping yeah. with and also sort of, sort of what, what's what gone on because of that, as a result well, of that. And he keeps having all these memories of his childhood in the Willamette Valley, I should say, Columbia River Gorge, like all around it. So this is a very Oregon-centric uh, novel, which Ken Casey was an Oregon writer, so... Um, this is the stuff we'll touch on later, but my point is he keeps having all these memories of his childhood and they often bleed into the scene he's currently in. Like he, he'll, he'll be able to smell the snow up in the mountains, like blowing through the trees. And then he'll think like, Oh, did they smell it too? Like the person that he's like currently standing beside. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really cool how he, uh, he blends all this stuff together. This was pretty new. Um, this kind of writing, um, Ken Kesey was considered kind of a postmodernist. Um, like I said, part of the counterculture. And when he was doing all of this, it was is one of those things where anytime you're doing something new, some people looked at it and said, this is great. This is groundbreaking. This is genius. And then there was other people looking at it and going like, this is Drek. This is, you know, the worst writing I've ever read. He he has no talent. I don't see what anybody sees in this writer. Stuff like that. Right. So you get both sides of it anytime you're doing something different. Wow, and that was of the of its at the time. But so, is at there the a, sort of a different consensus today? I would assume. I mean, yeah, I think he's he's considered an uh, important literary figure, and that movement was 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 just beginning. And then a bunch of people fo- followed in his footsteps, and um, this became a big thing. And he was one of the early writers in that movement. So you know, if it had fizzled out and gone nowhere, that'd be one thing. But it didn't. You know what I mean? It became this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we got to get into some of this, start getting into some of this background. Sure. Um, So I think I'm just going to progress chronologically because there's a lot of different avenues that this could take. So let's go all the way back. Uh, Kenneth Elton Kesey 
was born in 1935. He's an American novelist, essayist, and countercultural figure. He considered himself a link between the beat generation of the 1950s and the hippies of the 1960s. So it's interesting that he didn't actually consider himself a hippie. Because um, he, he at one point I read a quote where he said, I was too old to be a hippie. Um, so he instead of like kind of inspired the hippie generation that was like a little bit younger than him. Well, which would sort of lend itself to what I was talking about, where I felt like the counterculture with movies that started to come was sort of late 60s into the 70s. So maybe like mm. like the the you know the impetus for it could be somewhere in here, and maybe he doesn't ide- he doesn't necessarily he's he's maybe putting forth these ideas, but doesn't necessarily there it wasn't a movement yet you know like he was he didn't know what yeah. he was creating. It, and all it, that. Although a lot of people would say he's one of the key figures in the hippie movement, so I think they would probably call him a hippie. Right. <laughs> uh, but part of that is also I think the term later became sort of derogatory. So he also died November tenth two thousand one which I wanted to point out. Um, so RIP 19 years ago, roughly going on 20. And I think I read that it was from a stroke, uh, complications due to a stroke. Uh, so he was only 66. So he died fairly young. Wow. So he was born in Colorado to dairy, to a couple of dairy farmers. But in 1946, the family moved to Springfield, Oregon. Uh, so yeah, he's an Oregon figure, uh, you know, raised in Oregon, went to the University of Oregon, so on. Um, so he graduated ni- high school in 1953. He was an avid reader and film goer, and he took John Wayne, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Zane Gray as his role models, um, later naming a son Zane. And he toyed with magic, ventriloquism, and hypnotism. So I thought that was funny, little Edgar Rice Burroughs connection there, mm-hmm. another former project we've done. Yeah. I, I Just for anyone who, who's new to the podcast, if this is your first time listening, the reason a lot of this Oregon stuff is really is really um, interesting and, and kind of a connection is because Luke is a writer in Oregon. So it's sort of That's why. That's right. I, I, moved out, I moved out to Oregon. I should say that. Um, I am not from Oregon, but I've been here now for over five years, I guess going on six this year. Um, and so I now consider myself an, an Oregonian. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, it's cool to read all this stuff, and I was a lot of, uh, recognizing a lot of the references in the book itself. Yeah. So in 1956, he started attending the University of Oregon in uh, Eugene. A member of the Beta Theta Pi throughout his studies, uh, Kesey graduated from the University of Oregon with a BA in speech and communication in 1957, increasingly disengaged by the playwriting and screenwriting courses that comprised much of his major. He began to take literature classes in the second half of his collegiate career with James B. Hall, a cosmopolitan alumnus of the Iowa's Writer Workshop, who had previously taught at Cornell, Hall took on Kesey as his protege and cultivated his interest in literary fiction, introducing Kesey, whose reading interests were hitherto confined to science fiction, uh, to the works of Ernest Hemingway and other paragons of literary modernism. After the, la- after the last of several brief summer sojourns as a struggling actor in Los Angeles, Kesey published his first short story, uh, the first Sunday of September, in the Northwest Review and successfully applied to the highly selective Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship uh, to the 1958-59 to academic year. So unbeknownst to Kesey, who applied at Hall's request, the maverick literary critic Leslie Fieldler successfully convinced the Regional Fellowship Committee to select the, quote, rough-hewn Kesey along more traditional fellows from Reed College and other elite institutions. Because he lacked the prerequisites to work toward a traditional master's degree in English, Kesey elected to enroll in a non-degree program at Stanford's Creative Writing Center that fall. While studying and working in the Stanford milieu over the next five years, most of them spent as a resident of Perry Lane, a historically bohemian enclave adjacent to the university golf course, 
He developed intimate, lifelong friendships with fellow writers Ken Babs, Larry McCurdy, Wendell Berry, Ed McClanahan, Gurney Norman, and Robert Stone. During his initial fellowship year, Kesey frequently clashed with center director Wallace Stegner, who regarded the young writer as a, quote, sort of a highly talented illiterate, and rejected Kesey's application for the department uh, fellowship before permitting his attendance as the Woodrow Wilson Fellow. Reinforcing these perceptions, Stegner's deputy... Uh, Richard Scowcroft later recalled, quote, neither Wally nor I thought he had a particularly important talent, end quote. Uh, according to Stone, Stegner saw Kesey as a, quote, threat to civilization and intellectualism and sobriety. And he continued to reject Kesey's Stegner Fellowship applications uh, for the following years. Um, so nevertheless, he received, uh, ended up receiving a prestigious uh, prize for his first novel in progress, which was a novel that, that um, was never published, and he audited the graduate writing seminar. Although Kesey only secured his place by falsely claiming to Scowcroft that his colleague had said that he could attend classes for free through the 1960-61 to 61 term. So apparently he, he lied about it. <laughs> so around that time, he began to draft and workshop a manuscript that eventually evolved into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it sounds like what you were saying before, the sort of like the the old guard were were seeing what he what he was doing and the way he was acting and sort of the writing he was he was putting forth and maybe seeing it as something that didn't fit in with what they had historically seen as yeah. good writing and sort the of academia the, and the, your your typical writer of the time or or sort of what had been the writers for the last you know couple decades or whatever. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that you know. He was he was very much in that counterculture. You could tell from like the fact that he was. Well, it wasn't even really a thing yet. Is the thing this was in the late fifties. Uh, so so it, it, it's coming. It just sounds like he had a bohemian lifestyle. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, well, he was well, he was in college definitely. Um, and he was and he was popular. You could tell he had a lot of friends. Um, this was a popular guy, at least with his fellow students, right? Even if not necessarily with all of the staff, although some of them, some of his instructors seemed to like him a lot. Getting into one flew over the cuckoo's nest in particular. Um, it was written in 1959 and published in 1962 in the midst of the civil rights movement. Um, deep changes in, in the way psychology and psychiatry were being approached in America were underway. The 1960s began the controversial movement toward deinstitutionalization, an act that would have affected the characters in Kesey's novel. Um, the, the novel is a direct product of Kesey's time working the graveyard shift as an orderly at a mental health facility in Menlo Park, California. Not only did he speak to the patients and witness the workings of the institution, he also voluntarily took psychoactive drugs, including mescaline and LSD, as part of the Project MKUltra. Wow. So have you heard of MKUltra? I have, yeah. Yeah, so this was really going on. The CIA was doing a study where they were testing drugs to see if they could be used on, uh, I believe, the Russians, uh, Russian soldiers, um, as a, an effective thing in warfare. And so they were testing these LSD and other psychoactive drugs and, you know, keeping it all secret. It was all classified. And they were paying individuals and Kesey among them to uh, to experiment with this stuff. Crazy. And, yeah. and you know, knowing people who have done LSD, you you could say it's like a it's kind of a it'll change you like it's a it's a mind opener. So like to think of like having the government give you this and, and already be living that bohemian lifestyle and Maybe having your eyes open to to things that you took for granted before, I can see how how sort of he became uh, this this figure. Yeah, I mean, and he has said that 
I mean, you're this is exactly what he like lived his life championing later. We'll get into. Um, but he became a big proponent of LSD. Right. And he um, he has said that his experience doing it allowed him to empathize with the patients that were at this hospital. And that's mm-hmm. how he was able to write this novel, because he was able to see things from their point of view and um, empathize with their different perspectives. So after his work with Project MKUltra, uh, Kesey began to take LSD recreationally. He advocated for the drug use as a path to individual freedom, an attitude that was reflected in the views of psychological researchers of the time. In the 1960s, LSD was thought to offer the best access to the human mind. Each individual's experiences were said to vary. Emotions and experiences ranged from transformative into other life forms, religious experiences, and extreme empathy. It was Kesey's experience with LSD and other psychedelics that made him sympathetic towards the patients. So there you go. So yeah, this is this is something that he believed and he was a big proponent of. And uh, after doing all this, he he wanted to share it. Now there's there's been an, I don't know if it's an urban legend or what it is, but when I was in my undergraduate, I always heard that he got electroshock therapy as part of his research for this novel. I have not seen that in any of the research I've done. I have not seen anyone claim that. It's only just that he took these drugs. So that may be an urban legend. I don't know. But I just want to put it out there because I I have heard it and it's possible that he did and I just didn't find it yet, you know, in the things I've been looking through. But um, even even if he didn't, I think it's interesting that this is like sort of a rumor that came up about it. Yeah, um, I mean, that is wild if that's, if that's the case. Because, you know, I feel like nowadays people understand a little bit more what it does like yeah. physically to you and like what it what it can do to you um and so just i mean just this idea that so seemingly the government maybe was was asking him to do this electroshock therapy or he just wanted to do it in order to like sort of have the experience and get that perspective i don't know and like i said i don't even know i don't even know if it happened so <laughs> so I, I don't know what the circumstances would be um the way i heard heard it told was that he volunteered to have it done because he wanted to have the experience right. because this was always told to me when you're getting people saying like write what you know and then someone says like well you know what do we what do i know i don't really know anything it's like well go out and have some experiences ken kesey went and got electroshock therapy before he wrote <laughs> run flew over the cuckoo's nest so that he would know what it was like like that was the way it was presented to me um i didn't fact check it at the time whether or not it's actually accurate or not but uh that's what yeah. i had always heard that's a that's a pass for me i'm gonna go ahead and pass on electroshock therapy <laughs> Yeah, well, and we should also point out, this is something I saw in a lot of the research I was doing, that electroshock therapy used in the way that it's done um, in the 60s and, um, you know, I think uh, people have said the way it's portrayed in the film um, and the ways it's portrayed in a lot of pop culture um, is not always accurate. Um, there, There are ways to do it safely and actually have benefit to people. Um, I know Carrie Fisher, the late Carrie Fisher, um, was a big proponent of it. She actually had it done a lot, um, mm-hmm. and it would help her a lot with depression, which is like if you have really bad depression, it can help with that. Um, but it's done; it's, it has to be administered in a very, very particular way. They have to have the voltages and everything just right. It has to be done in a, you know the, where they put the, the the diodes or whatever they're called. It's very important placement, all this stuff. And back in the '60s, they didn't know a lot of this yet. It was still kind of new. And so they were doing maybe way too much voltage, way too direct, and they were doing it. They were doing it as punishment. Often, it's widely reported that it would often be used as punishment for bad behavior, and it, that is, you know, way out of line and terrible because it has permanent brain damage that it causes. 
Right. And I, I, you know, I said that's not, not speaking about the potential benefits, talking about how it's portrayed in the movie and the story right. and, and just pop, like you said, culture in general. Um, I would, I would pass on this, this 1960s in an, in a, uh, institution, uh, yeah. electroshock therapy. Let's get a little bit into what happened with Ken Kesey after this novel. Because this novel was sort of um, a runaway success, although it was very divisive. Um, a lot of people, a lot of critics hated it. A lot of critic, you know, other critics loved it. And much like, as you can imagine, it's like old guard who were looking at it and saying this is trash, and then and then other people saying, oh, this is new. This is something new and different, and we should embrace it. And um, because of that, it's been one of the most widely banned books. Um, in American history, uh, banned frequently in schools. Um, I think I was seeing um, even fairly recently there was a movement to ban it from the curriculum. Yeah, in uh, two thousand year two thousand, um, they were still trying to ban it. So it's been you know it's it, just like with anything we've talked about. You start banning it, and it just makes it more and more popular because people are like, ooh, it's like putting a parental advisory sticker on an album. You know, it just makes right. more people buy it. <laughs> yeah. Immediately after publishing this book. Um, it was adapted into a Broadway play, um, which uh, was going to be a pretty big production. And so uh, in 1964, Ken Kesey decided that he and his friends, who at that time were calling themselves the Merry Pranksters, were going to take a bus ride from the West Coast to New York City to watch... Um, this production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then come back. And this bus ride became uh, famous in America because he took a school bus and he painted it in like psychedelic colors or what we think of that today. This is before the Hit Me movement, remember? Um, he, pa- he painted these garish colors and him and a bunch of friends um, got in this, this uh, bus and were taking LSD and marijuana and all kinds of other drugs and went on this road trip for an entire year where they stopped up by all these different cities and towns and they would like interact with people and they would leave graffiti and they would they were like over the top and everyone, you know, was all upset about them because they were, you know, dancing and acting wild because they were on drugs and everything else. So this was a really, <laughs> really big sort of uh, bus trip from everything I've been seeing so much so that they, they made a documentary about it, um, which I watched uh a little bit about that and uh, it's really really fascinating stuff i would watch that yeah it sounds cool i'll send you i'll send you the thing i watched it was pretty cool these merry pranksters included a lot of actually really uh notable figures so um notable members of the group include ken babs carolyn mountain girl garcia lee kornstrom and neil cassidy we also have Stuart brand dorothy fadiman paul foster dale kesey uh, George Walker, the the Warlocks, who later became known as the Grateful Dead, uh, Del Close, Wavy Gravy, Paul Krasner, Ed McClanahan, and Gurney Norman, among many others. So there was a lot of these different people that came in there. I don't know who a lot of these people are. Um, I was looking at them though, and a lot of them are like notable film critic, notable novelist. Uh, you know, there was one of the guys who was one of the founders of Woodstock is among them. Um, you, yeah, you see, um, oh, and one of the really interesting bits is this guy, Neil Cassidy. So Neil Cassidy, uh, this is kind of a rabbit hole thing I, I can't even really get onto, but have you ever heard of Jack Kerouac's novel On the, on the Road? Um, 
Maybe. I, I don't think so, though. Okay, so this is a really famous novel from the 50s, which is sort of a preeminent novel of the Beat Generation. And this novel is basically about this guy, this real-life guy um, named Neil Cassidy. And this Neil Cassidy guy, who Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road had already been written about, uh, Ken Kesey befriended him and basically like welcomed him to his group, and he was the driver of this bus. So he drove the bus throughout the entire country, this guy who the, who the novel On the Road is about. Cool. Pretty wild. So, um, oh yeah, in one of the, in the documentary, there was there was footage of him while he's driving the bus. He like gets up, falls over onto the seat, and then starts walking back through the bus, saying hi to everyone. And they're just all talking to him. Hi, how's it, what's it, how's it going? You know, so on and so forth. And no one's driving. Jesus. No one's driving. Yeah. Oh boy. So uh, the guy he would later die. Um, I think in the seventies, I want to say he was found dead by a railroad tracks. He was super into like crystal meth and uh, had a lot of had a lot of problems, um, but he was this really prominent figure that a lot of people knew about. Like he was kind of infamous from you know in his role as this sort of like party guy, and and I don't know. I haven't read on the road. If I read on the road, I would know a lot more about this guy. I assume, but I haven't read it. Right. Okay. So getting back to the merry pranksters. So they had this big bus trip, right? Eventually they get back, and Ken Kesey starts. Uh, hosting parties in the San Francisco Valley. Um, he has this big home where he invites people out and it was considered like the coolest, like hippest thing you could, you could go to. And you go to these like psychedelic parties that were described as like, he had all these like speakers rigged up in the trees and stuff and in the forest. And there was this like music echoing everywhere. And Hunter S. Thompson, uh, the guy who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was one of the people who got invited to one of these parties. And he was talking about it in this little documentary thing I was watching. Uh, talking about Ken Kesey and how it was so really cool to be invited to these parties. And um, it w- they were known for just being debaucherous and everybody just uh, was, you know, there was black lights everywhere, strobe lights. Um, and they started doing these things called um, acid tests that they became famous for. And you'd have to take the acid test. And that was essentially just taking acid. Um, and then having, having the experience and seeing what happened, I guess. Um, this is, oh, by the way, this, uh, acid, uh, LSD and acid and all this stuff wasn't illegal yet. Um, it wasn't made illegal until 1966. So this is in the years leading up to it being made illegal. There's a famous book that got written by a, uh, journalist named Tom Wolfe called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which is about going to one of these parties or several of these parties. And it's considered a really, really famous novel for the hippie movement in general. I guess a lot of people read about this and then they wanted, they were like, I want to be a part of this. Um, right. He had written this, bo- written this book about attending the parties thrown by Ken Kesey. So again, we're, we're connecting everything back to Ken Kesey, right? And, and his notoriety all started with writing Run Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. So yeah, he would take these acid tests on the road and, and there were these parties that he would, that he would show and they were, they would be, um, they would be called, called like happenings. So they would be like multimedia experiences with light shows and, and music. And the Grateful Dead was actually a house band for these parties. So they would play live at all these parties. Um, and how they g- gained a lot of their notoriety was, was through their connection to this stuff. I mean, that's crazy. It's all of that to say, like, that's in, that's so much to do with the influence of, I mean, you think of the Grateful Dead on its own. 
uh, like what yeah. that meant to the hippie movement and every, and the people who would just deadheads who would travel with the Grateful Dead and that was their lives and like how much it seems like the Grateful Dead were involved in in his life as well like it's wild to, I, I'm definitely gonna look into more of this stuff and watch some documentaries on it yeah I mean there's so much that like I won't even be able to get into the connection between the Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey um, is really deep um, they the the Merry Pranksters was, was his kind of group and his, they lived in like a commune almost. It's one of the early like hippie communes. And, um, they would go around on this bus, which was called further, by the way, it was the name of the bus, mm-hmm. um, as in like going further and they would take it and they'd go to Woodstock or they'd go to like, uh, you know, protests or they'd go to different demonstrations and they'd show up in this bus and, you know, they'd be playing music out of it and people would all be on drugs. And, um, but they were, they were also considered like, like literally the very uh they lived up to the name Mary Pranksters like they were it was a very positive like um it was a lot of like joking and just having fun and um not not dark now one thing i did see is that the the movement to its detriment got involved with the hell's angels uh motorcycle gang right and um i i was reading that like later on i think in like 1969 at, at a concert, um, the Hell's Angels beat a black man to death with some pool cues. And a lot of people marked it as, like, the end of the hippie movement because it was at this, like, big concert. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, when I was watching this documentary, people were saying, like, we should have never got involved with them. But because we were all so high, we weren't really thinking straight. And we ended up sort of getting involved with some people that we shouldn't have. Um, so, you know, I'm not trying to point, point paint it all as rosy, right? Like, there is... There's there's kind of undersides to this, and there's people dying of drugs, you know, like like uh, the guy I talked about, you know, died from his crystal meth and stuff. So, um, there's definitely dark sides to all of this. I'm not trying to just fully romanticize the notion, but I think it's important because you also get the Manson family that you know committed a bunch of murders, and they were considered hippies. So, um, you know, not by the hippies themselves, but to the outside world. Um, and so you, you just, it was just a huge social movement that, um, became so important to the sixties and seventies and the counter movement against it, um, by conservative America at the time was like, this is the, you know, the degrading of the moral fiber of America. Look at these people. They're out there being promiscuous and they're not even human anymore. They're dancing like wild people and they're worshiping Satan and all this other stuff. And because of that, you also got heavy metal and you got, you know, Black Sabbath and you got bands like this who were coming in and saying like, well, if you're going to call us Satanists, then we're going to be Satanists and we're going to you were going to have darkness and we're going to do all this stuff. So in many ways, you can see, you know, the way music infected it, it affected it. And um, just I don't know if you want to look at like the importance of the hippie movement and counterculture movement of the 60s. And what that has gone on to be, you got like the the Kent State shooting, um, you got all these all these huge events, right? In, in time, um, people protesting the Vietnam War on the side of peace and and all that peace and love, and all that came back to the hippie movement. And like I said, in some ways, all of this can be tied back to Ken Kesey writing this novel. So there you have it. Um, I feel like I'm all over the place, but like you can just see a tip <laughs> of the iceberg of the stuff that I found when I was researching this novel um it's been wild i mean like you said it's all good context though because it's i mean this this story isn't even necessarily inherently like a hippie story or anything like that but you can see how psychedelics would influence his writing 
right and right. Not, and not to mention sort of like love of of everyone and and some of that stuff is in there as well but uh well and and, and i i think also fighting back against um the man or right. oppression con- like like yeah, uh, yeah like uh, yeah oppression government um control fighting back mm-hmm. against control I mean, and to speak to like the '60s in general, it's also sort of like the moment in time when when politics became different as well. It's like like everyone trusted the government before the '50s and '60s, and you know you see you see a lot of sort of people being more and and you know painting with a broad brush here, but maybe being more critical or yeah. I mean, the JFK was assassinated in 1963, the year before they went on this ride. Unless I'm getting that year wrong, but I think that's what I saw. So Ken Kesey said that in many ways they were like everything changed. And and when that happened, Um, which like I listened to a multi-part podcast about the assassination of JFK and it's wild and just how much that changed American politics and the American sort of consciousness. But um, there, he said that what they were doing was sort of a reaction to that. It was like, you know, we're going to be radically good and radically talk about peace and love because something so terrible had just happened. Right. Big political figures are getting involved. When I was doing the research and I was just like, this man is like, you know, the, the, the butterfly theory, you know, was just, was in my mind. I was like, man, what happens if he, if he doesn't write this novel, what happens if, you know, I don't know. It's like, it probably still happens, but in a different way, all of that is just background. Um, we got to get into the book. We're going to get into it a little bit here. Like I said, we're, a lot of our book discussion is going to be next week. Um, but let's cover a little bit of what actually occurred in what we read here. I just have two paragraphs of summary I'm going to read and we can kind of react to them. I'm going to let you talk a bunch here because I feel like I've been blind. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Okay, so uh, here we go. The book is narrated by, quote, Chief Bromden, a gigantic yet docile half-Native American patient at a psychiatric hospital who presents himself as deaf and mute. Bromden's tale focuses mainly on the antics of the rebellious Randall Patrick McMurphy. The head administrative nurse, Nurse Ratched, rules the ward with an absolute authority and little medical oversight. She is assisted by her three day shift orderlies and her assistant doctors. Okay, so these are all the players. I think the biggest thing you have to think about is the way that the story set up to be sort of unreliable. Because early on, you're 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 sort of thinking like, okay, how how bad can this nurse be? Like, why? What would be the reasoning for treating people this way? Like, are people are these? This is the way the the people who are in the institution are seeing this, or is this actually going on? Um, but to see like basically from all the perspectives that we get from Bromden, from the sort of omniscient point of view that we get, she seems like she genuinely is somewhat, at least her control, like her want for control goes far enough to where in my eyes, she's a pretty evil person. Um, Yeah. I think she's clearly a villain here in this book. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, it makes for an interesting villain, but also it seems too real because this is people, people who are in this, are being sedated in this institution are being sedated. They're being controlled. Some of them like Pete uh, Bansini are, were born with, with something that they could never, they could never sort of cope with. It was, it was something that completely changed their lives forever. And just to think of somebody who, who is so harsh or so like sort of uh, cruel in certain ways based on, based on, you know, a vying for power or like 
an annoyance. It seems like some of the time, some of the patients that are in this facility are annoying the people who are taking care of them. And this is, and apparently this is at a time when if you were annoyed with someone, you could punish them in ways. And it, it, you know, like I, I think at times it, it's stated that McMurphy is like calling bullshit on the fact that every, all of the, all of the people that are staying in this institution are treated like children. And, yeah. and, and that's that, like, I mean, I think there are people who they're, they're maybe born with, with something that, that prevents them from progressing and they are basically children for their entire lives. But to treat everyone, like I said before, painting with a broad brush, treating everyone the same is where you run into people who are fully functioning in every way. And, and even the people who are seemingly children, like they, they don't deserve to be treated, you know, as seemingly like prisoners or, or, or people who, who have done things that are that are wrong in their lives that deserve these. And, and that's not to say that some of the people in there specifically, uh, McMurphy is kind of has a dark past and was arrested and there's some rape implications and things like that, that are talked about. Uh, so it's not to say that everybody in here is innocent, but it's just the fact that the innocent people are in there with the people who are not. So, I mean, it's kind of a tough book in some ways, for me to get into and you're touching on some of the reasons um mcmurphy is sort of presented as the character we're supposed to really like and it has taken me a while to come around on him um because i just didn't like him early on um but the thing that is his redeeming factor and i can i can like a character who's got a dark past and has done things i don't agree with and is you know terrible in many ways um, as long as they do things that are re- redemptive and, um, you know what I mean? Like that's sort of the complexity of the human condition and it's also fiction. So I'm able to, you know, root for these characters sometimes. And so he sees the other patients as people. And I think that one of the things you're touching on is just the dehumanizing nature of what they're in. Um, one of my frustrations with the novel is, uh, it seems to me that Kesey, and I say that because it comes from multiple characters. It comes from our main character, and uh, it also comes from McMurphy and others. Um, Kesey seems to equate freedom and like sort of personal freedom and personal uh, personhood, um, the ability to have that. He equates it with masculinity. And so he's always talking about the emasculation of these men. And he talks a lot about the nurse cutting their balls off or, um, doing, you know, emasculating them in some other way. And then he even has a character commit suicide by cutting his own balls off in the book. Um, we, we hear talk about, so I feel like all of these choices are deliberate because Kesey is equating freedom with being a man. Um, and so that's just something that I chafe against because, I think free, like personal freedom and the ability to have personal dignity is extremely important, and I root for that. But I don't like the way it's tied to man, manliness because if there were women in this ward with them, they would be suffering the same sort of uh, sort of injustice as everyone else. I don't know why it has to be tied to manhood in that way. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's a couple things that you can tell it's of of a certain time of of even as maybe progressive as, as he was being in certain ways, there are things, there are issues of race and sexism oh, that yeah. are in this story that, that clearly today are not seen as progressive and, and 
are are clearly problematic. Um, they're, they're said to be a matriarchy that they're suffering under, right? Like it's, yeah. Which you know, I mean, in terms of the story, there is someone who is cruel who happens to be a woman. That's what right. I would. That's what I would put it at. But right. Um. The it was so almost seemingly like like demonizing women in a way because yeah. she she well was. notably the doctor who they befriend a little bit and they use his power to get some stuff going and McMurphy does he's a man. Right, right, who's been emasculated and has lost his power to this woman. Right, and I mean that's not to even mention like I think it's so interesting that because this is a difference from from the movie to get Bromden's point of view for the story is so interesting, and yet it still is sort of like a white savior. Uh, this is like like we're in the point of view of of Bromden, and I think Bromden's been set up to be a really interesting character. I honestly have no idea how it's going to end in the book. It everything's from the perspective of. Oh, but look at McMurphy. Like he he's free. He's on his own. He's gonna he he isn't affected if he is affected by the things that um the nurse is doing, that he doesn't show it and he just and he immediately comes in and takes over the entire ward and he's like, I'm the I don't remember what he even calls it, but he's like, I'm the something hound he's basically Bull becoming Goose the Looney or something, I think he says. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the impression is that he maybe is also faking his mental illness, right? Right, which is another is another whole thing is like who like it's not even necessarily is he faking it um because it's stated outright by the doctors and everything. Like the yeah. doctors are like the the only the only thing that's in the like some one of the major things in in the notes here is, you know, does is he actually in need of being in a facility like this or is right. he doing this because he got in trouble so many times? That he's using yeah. this to, as a sort of a scapegoat, and then you know that, and that comes to play a part a lot because he seemingly has the most agency in the story, which right. and is fighting back against an oppressor who yeah. is treating these people who can't stand up for themselves very well. Um, yeah, I mean, like I, I don't personally mind him having the agency and fighting back and all this stuff. It's just, it's just the way he's constantly equating it with being emasculated and stuff that bothered me. And yeah, the occasional racism that he's throwing out there, which I can tell. Like, I just get this subtext that the author really wants us to go, like, oh, that's he shouldn't be saying that, but it's just a personality quirk. You know what I mean? Like, I forgive it. And I feel right. like that's kind of that was just kind of the mood about racism still in the 60s, right? Like, mm-hmm. you shouldn't do it, but. You know, we're not going to completely blame you. And I'm not saying that's what everybody thought, but that's what Kesey thought. And and that was the mood among maybe even white pr- progressives. Right, right. Right. I'm Obviously, minorities didn't agree with that. This is the civil rights movement, for God's sake, is going yeah. on at the time. But um, I think that just shows that, like, how, I don't know, like, I feel like for modern progressives, uh, at least in my circles, you know, a lot of us have realized that... Uh, you can't just shrug off that kind of stuff and go, oh, it's just a personality quirk. Don't worry about it. Because it has real consequences yeah. and it and it perpetuates things and it is dangerous. But I think this is a time in which that by people like Ken Kesey, it wasn't something that he was thinking about. And you see it in film a lot, too. Like, I think you see you see this everywhere, right? Where by, by white creators who are making things and they can have a character be racist and still likable. And then it's because you can just kind of shrug it off as like. Uh, well, it's just a personality quirk. I think the idea being that if if they were given the same sort of points of view that we are today, maybe they would feel the same as us. But that's also sort of like giving them an out for not, you know, right. feeling that way at the time. So it's not like it makes it right in any way. It's just it's just something we have to contend with because this is a historic novel that has significance yeah. and it's it is of the time. 
So one thing I want to touch on too is the the way he's described the um, patients as being either um, chronics or acutes, right? And how they're divided in these two groups, and how uh, how scary it was when they were talking about how people come in as acute sometimes, and then they wind up as chronics because of the treatment. Mm-hmm. And that was just such an indictment of the entire system, right? Just on its surface. Like the yeah. idea that this guy who's like pissing himself and like he's being described as being nailed to the wall, which I don't think he actually is, but um, that that guy was once an acute who acted up and they got something wrong with the electroshock therapy they gave him or something and gave him too much. And now he's this scary. That's scary shit. Yeah. I mean, and, and that th- I think that's why this this story is so referenced like you've seen something that references this in some way sure any 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 movie or or book you've read about um about a mental institution you know i think like american horror story season two and just like just anything that you've seen is probably referencing this in some way so danny devito's in the in the film one flew over the cuckoo's nest and then there's a there's an episode of always sunny in philadelphia that is literally like a spoof on one floor of the cuckoo's nest and like to have danny devito in both versions is really interesting stuff (laughs) that's pretty wild didn't know that shout out yeah to i mean i love that show so one like uh the the references are definitely not lost on me when when they have danny devito in both and he's sort of like an institutionalized (laughs) character yeah well and and we'll get into that probably with the movie some too because movies as we've learned like i don't know they just like because i feel like they reach wider audiences um, it just seems like to me because they're so easily consumed probably. Um, and because of that, I'm going to be really curious to know about the, the lasting impact of that film, uh, when we get to it, but let me read this other paragraph of summary I have, and then we can sort of wrap up our, our thoughts on this first half that we've read. McMurphy constantly antagonizes nurse ratchet and upsets the routines of the ward leading to endless power struggles between the inmate and the nurse. He runs a card table, comments on Nurse Ratched's figure, and incites the other patients to conduct a vote about watching the World Series on television. His reaction after claiming to be able to and subsequently failing to lift a heavy control panel in the defunct hydrotherapy room, uh, referred to as the tub room, is, but at least I tried, which gives the men incentive to try and stand up for themselves instead of allowing Nurse Ratched to take control of every aspect of their lives. So this is one of the last things that happens, um... And well, it's, it's he 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 tries to lift the thing and then fails, and then he says that line, which yeah, which I had written down. That I thought was was pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like well, but but at least I tried. And then he and then that changes the vote, and they're able to they vote for this thing, and then they're like kind of staging a protest where they all sit down to watch this blank television. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so, I think actually the end of this part. A couple of things I want to talk about with this story. I've talked about Bromden a little bit, but the sort of flashbacks he has with his with his uh, father, and then also you know him dealing with his own mel- mental illnesses. Uh, but he's also sort of a background character in terms of this story so far. He's kind of on the outskirts yes. of every situation, never really getting in trouble, never getting involved, never standing up for anything, until basically the end of this this section that we get to here where he kind of sways the vote and, it, and is able to make it so that all of the people staying, all of the people who've been institutionalized technically win the vote over the nurse, which is, you know, there's sort of battles going back and forth between uh, McMurphy and, and the nurse. Uh, I, I think the thing that I find most, most affecting in this story so far is seeing people who, are, who have been oppressed in this way finding a way to stand up for themselves you know i think right. that that's sort of the the really strong heart of this story so far at least 
Well, and, and uh, with McMurphy, I was saying earlier, like, I didn't really like him, even though I was supposed to. But, like, this is when I'm starting to like him. Right. Because I, he, he, is, he is helping these people, you know? Right. And, and that moment where he, like, hurt himself because he tried so hard and that he was just making a point. Like, I liked him in that moment. That was a, it was a clever thing to do, yep. and it shows the, the he has convictions, right? Yeah, and I just to, just to make the point, because it keeps popping in my head, I, I think, from my memory, he's far more likable in the movie. But I don't okay. want to like sort of like, you know, I don't want to tie myself to that. And I, I just remember them like like I didn't I don't think he was this. He had this much going on that made him unlikable. He was more of just like sort of a wild card. Whereas in okay. this, he has like actual dark back background. But I don't remember 100 percent. So it's something to think about. So one uh, scene, a small scene I wanted to touch on was when he take uh, McMurphy takes his shirt off um and uh bromden sees the tattoos he has and he's also wearing these little shorts or like white whale shorts and he mm. jokes that like he dated someone who said that he was a symbol the tattoos that he has one of them is said to be aces and eights do you know the significance of the aces and eights uh poker hand that he has tattoos on his on him on himself i think it's on his shoulder no i don't think i do is it it's a hand of poker you're saying it is known as the dead man's hand Okay. Um, it is known as the dead man's hand because it was the hand that Wild Bill Hickok was said to have had when he was shot in the back of the head and assassinated at a poker table. Wow! I know I didn't. That's so, so cool. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, it's the dead man's hand. It's it, yeah. It's it's. I think gamblers would know this hand, right? Like especially yeah. you know back in the day. And I think it's interesting that McMurphy has this tattooed on him. I wondered when I heard that. I was like, is this is this? I haven't seen the movie. I was like, is this a. Uh, is this kind of like a, a signal that he is, he's going to die or or something? Um, I well, don't know. We we do get uh, the idea that he is a gambler for sure. He talks yeah. about that a lot. Clearly, he's betting yeah. the the people. He's gambling constantly. constantly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, I think it's significant for well, sure. Well, and he's also got the white whale, right? Which Moby Dick, which I haven't read, but I know enough about it that you're um, chasing it. He's chasing the the big one. Yeah, and it doesn't go well for Ahab, as we learned in Jaws, which also referenced Moby Dick, right? Like right. it doesn't go well for Ahab, who's chasing the white whale. So if if there's a character chasing that or being associated with a white whale, it seems like some impossible goal. And then you have the dead man's hand. I don't know. There just seems like they're. And he specifically said, "My, you know, she told me I'm a symbol." So I immediately thought, like, "Hmm, what does that mean?" And I started right. looking at all this stuff. Yeah. yeah, you may or may you may or may not be picking up on some stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, like people who are in uh, graduate school writing their novels, um, I think uh, quite likely that they might slip in some literary references and symbols here. Right. Um, one of the scenes I actually really liked too was the Monopoly game. Um, because I thought it was really fun to have such a familiar kind of boring game and yet write about it in a way that's really interesting. I found it really interesting because it was it was developing character and it was showing McMurphy. I think when he first came in, he was looking to just kind of like use people to like make money off of them. Like they're all easy marks and they all have this income he knows about and he's going to get all their money from them and all this stuff. But in this game, it feels more like he actually cares about them. Um, and I'm thinking in particular how he lets that one character who had the like house in his mouth or whatever, or the dice in his mouth or something, he like counts his his teeth as part of the role so that he ends up on the one property that he owns again. And he's like, oh, you did it again. And lucky you. And like, it, it just seems like he's like actually connecting with these characters and, and um, actually cares about them as people, which makes everything he's doing more um, effective. So one of the things that I'm looking forward to as we continue this novel is that um, I think one of the key distinctions I think we're going to have is that this book is told from the point of view of Bromden. And Bromden 
hallucinates and Bromden has these like trippy dreams and they 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 often seem to be tied to the the deeper truth of the universe right like he's talking about this fog that other characters can't see yet is affecting them and he'll notice like a change in the fog that is like a precursor to an event that hasn't even happened yet and then the person comes in and it's like oh he was like predicting it so it implies like a secret knowledge of the universe or something, right? Right. And he knows that like McMurphy's not affected by the fog or doesn't show any signs of being yeah. affected by the fog. Yeah. And so what I'm interested in is where this is going to go because uh, I predict that McMurphy is going to continue to have struggles against the nurse. Um, there's going to be, I, it feels to me like he's going to lead an uprising or something or a revolt. It seems like they're hinting at that strongly. How that's all going to go down, I don't know. Someone's going to get electroshock therapy, probably McMurphy. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe Bromden or um, or both. I don't know. But my point is, I'm going to be really fascinated to see how this is written from the point of view of someone who's hallucinating, because I think you could get this really sort of surreal crescendo where what's really happening and his hallucination of what's happening blends together into like something really beautiful. And I suspect that's what we're going to get as we progress through this novel. And I'm looking forward to it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I like cool. that prediction. Um, I think, you know, just to predict some, although I know how the movie ends, just predict, predict the book a little bit. I'm assuming that because Bromden is such a massive character in the book, whereas I feel like I remember him not being quite as, as large in the, in the movie, I think that he'll have a different role to play potentially. Um, but overall, I think it'll probably play out pretty similarly. I don't know, but I, I would be really interested if it was, if it was the movie changed a lot. So that, that'll yeah. be something well, interesting to talk yeah. about in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we will find out um, when we get to that movie episode, but um, next week we're going to be, we're going to be really getting into this novel how it finishes out, what we think the messages are. Um, if anybody has any other stuff about Ken Kesey they want me to know, um, do send that to, to us in an email to inktofilm at gmail.com. Um, I know that there's a lot. I also probably mess some stuff up. Um, so, <laughs> you know, okay. just, I don't have a research team like the bigger podcasts. It's just me, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and, and so mistakes can be made. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm open to hearing about it. I know he's a big figure in Oregon. I know that there's, there's like a Ken Kesey square or something. There's like stuff named after this guy. Oh, in the documentary I was watching, he was talking about how, um, he still has the, the, or at the time he was, this was in 1999, I think. He had the bus in his property and it was like all rusted out. And um, the Smithsonian had been had been telling him that they wanted it. They wanted he wanted they wanted him to um, donate it to the Smithsonian, but he didn't want to. Like he felt like it that he liked where it was. He liked that it was like getting rusted out. And he was talking about how like as the paint is peeling off, there's like a new layer of paint that it keeps coming to because I guess they repainted it like a ton, a ton of times. Mm -hmm. And every new layer of paint he finds like brings back some memory and all this stuff. So. He was like super into having it on his property. And then I guess he remade it a second time. He has like a newer version of the original bus too that um, in the documentary he was taking out on a, on a, on a trip too. So, wow. Um, cool stuff. I'll, I'll, um, I'm going to link that documentary. I'll put the link in the show notes and then I'm going to send it to you. You should totally, you should totally watch it um, before next week. And then you can kind of tell me your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we should fun. like, we'll, we'll both take LSD and come back and let everybody know like how it affected <laughs> us and see if we're different people next week. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we'll tell you if we did do that, but um, if you want to talk <laughs> off air about it, let me know. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, 
yeah, if you if you guys have experiences with uh, mind-altering drugs and you want to write in anonymously, tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. That'd be so so cool to hear about people's experiences. <laughs> yeah, um, and if Ken Kesey is someone that is important to you and if he's important to you because of that or because of something else, let us know. Be curious to hear any of that. Anyway, um, I wanted to shout out one of our patrons, um, Eric G. Um, actually, he's he's in a write-in, a write-in group that I attend uh, virtually now, um, weekly, and I was talking to him about this book, and he's a patron of ours, and he's been supporting us for a while, and he said it's one of his favorite books, like top 20. Cool. Um, it's been a while since he's read it, but he said that he, he fondly remembers it, loves it, and so I'm hoping that he enjoys this episode, and I'm hoping that uh, all of our listeners enjoy it, now, especially if you're a big fan of this book. Um, hopefully we do it justice, and you know, even though we we try and play it straight and like call stuff call stuff out when we see it, um, that doesn't mean that we're not having a good time with something and we're not enjoying it for its own merits, which we're trying to do here with this book. And I'm having a good time reading it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. All, all in all, like you know, historical significance and just the story really engaged me. Just this idea of of this group being oppressed like this. Um, so I, you know, I am enjoying it. But yeah. if you wanted to connect with us, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those adding to film. We also have the Council of Inklings, which this project came from. We, we put up mm-hmm. a poll and had uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as one of the options, and it won by, a, I think, a significant amount, but there was a close Yeah, it just it beat out race. the Prestige, actually, was yeah. the, the runner-up. So, yeah, if you wanted to check that out, we're on, we're on Facebook it's the Council of Inklings, and if you want to join up, we post polls, any sort of adaptation news that we see, any potential projects, so that's a great place to stay connected. Yeah, and if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating or review, um, or if you're on YouTube, like the video, maybe leave a comment letting us know. Um, I think we get a good number of people on YouTube who find our videos who are searching for bootlegged, like, versions of someone reading the book which is not legal so that's not what this is um and i think they dislike the video when they find out that that's not what it is so counteract that move by leaving us a like uh, that would help us um because the algorithms i don't know anyway uh, <laughs> be much appreciated all right man i'm uh driving my bus i'll be there any day now hope you're ready to go yeah. coast to coast adventure <laughs> right we gotta we gotta yeah, do, it. do it yeah we'll stop by every city and pick up some listeners along the way It'll be a blast. Yeah. I mean, you joke, but <laughs> uh, like, how, that would be a lot of fun. So. <laughs> that'd be pretty sick. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe we'll kick that off next week. Uh, but until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.